Sam, you know one of the things I really like about you? What's that? You read the brochure. I'm proud. This is the nine days of Fast and Furious. Welcome to the nine days of Fast and Furious, Monkey Off My Backlog's first limited series. I'm your host, Sam Morris, and with me is Tessa Suela. Today, we're seeing what the team, no, family, is getting up to in 2013's Fast and Furious 6. But first, it's the spirit of the holiday season. I, I mean, holiday season spirit. Tessa? Did you just call me a specter? I did. I have to be really honest, I was up very late playing Cyberpunk 2077, so I don't have anything particularly catchy to say about the holiday spirit today, except for my very fancy and very warm green headband with jingle bells on it, little reindeer antlers. I enjoy that. You can hear it jingle a little bit if I move my head really fast. No? Nothing from you, Sam Morris? Nope. All right. Well, let's let's move past that then and talk about our podcast within a podcast, Sam's Holiday Cocktail. Sam, what cocktail did you make today to embody your holiday spirit? Well, once again, and if you've been listening, you know I don't have any holiday spirit, so I am sorry to report that this is not a holiday cocktail. Also, because somebody stayed up late last night playing cyberpunk, it is tomorrow morning as we're recording this, so I started off with the appropriately titled Tequila Sunrise. And how do you make a appropriately titled Tequila Sunrise? Well, you make an appropriately titled Tequila Sunrise the way you make a regular Tequila Sunrise, which is to fill a pint glass with some ice cubes, And then in that, you're going to throw at least three ounces of orange juice. You can put in a little bit more. If you really want to be fancy, you can mix some grapefruit juice or some uh, pineapple juice in there. And then you're going to add a little bit of lime juice to give it a little bit more zest. About half an ounce ought to do you. And then you're going to put in one and a half ounces of tequila. Or if you put in a little more than three ounces of juice, go ahead and knock that up to two ounces. And then... Stir all that up so you got the ice and those three things in there. And now you're going to take a half ounce of grenadine. And if you're fancy and not in a hurry, you're going to very slowly pour that on top. Maybe let it dribble down the sides of the glass. And it's going to look really cool. If you're in a hurry like I was today, it just all goes down there and it mixes in this this nice, uh, you know, purple color. And it still tastes good. But you got options there. Tequila Sunrise. Enjoy, everybody. All right, this has been the podcast within a podcast, Sam's Holiday Cocktail. All right, so there are lots of things to talk about in Fast and Furious 6, but Tessa, why don't you first tell us what happened? Well, Sam, this movie starts with Brian and Dom racing down a countryside road in Spain to get to the birth of Brian's son, Jack, which was teased at the end of the last movie. However, shortly after the birth of Jack, Hobbs, played by The Rock, shows up and makes Dom an offer that he can't refuse. It turns out that Letty is still alive, also teased at the end of the last film, and has been working with a SAS Major Owen Shaw, 
played by Luke Evans of the Hobbit and Dracula fame. And and Hobbs needs Dom and Brian and the whole team to take down Owen Shaw because he's just too good at what he does. So, of course, Dom goes and talks to Brian about it. And there's a really interesting conversation that I wanted to highlight because I'm sure we'll talk about it later where Brian points out that even though they're in Spain, which has no extradition treaty, and it's nice, he has his family there, they're living in a nice house, but it's still not home, you know? It's, it's home, but it's not home. So Dom negotiates with Hobbs that if they do this with him, if they work with the U.S. government to take down Shaw, they get Letty, and also it's full pardons for everybody. So he calls up the team, and they all reunite. We got Han. We got Tej. We got... Roman. <laughs> See if I can remember all the names. We got Giselle. We got pretty much everybody except for the Los Bandoleros people because as Tage points out, they're at a casino somewhere. We don't know. They're not in this movie. So they all get back together. They're all here for Letty because Letty's family, even though I don't think Letty has actually met most of these people, that's not the point. You all do things for family. So they go up against Owen Shaw. There are a lot of MacGuffins, a lot of car pranks, there are a lot of rock pranks, which we're going to talk about here in a little bit, and other hijinks. The important point is, is that Letty actually doesn't remember Dom at all. This is straight out of a telenovela. She has amnesia, but she turns anyway and becomes part of the family because she is so impressed by Dom and his family. However, in the climactic sequence of this film, we do get a couple of deaths. We get Giselle, who dies, saving Han in a very, very sad sequence, because I was very invested in their relationship. However, they do defeat Owen Shaw, they get Letty back, and they get 1327 back in L.A. So we see everybody at the end together in L.A. having a barbecue, and they are home. They have been pardoned. Letty is back with Dom. So at the very end of this, in the teaser to this, because, you know, this group of people can't have nice things. There's always something bad happening. We get to actually see the death of Han in, from Tokyo Drift. And in one of the most amazing retcons of all time, we learn that Han's death was not, in fact, a drifting accident, but it was caused by Jason Statham, who has vowed revenge for some unknown reason against Dom and the gang, Sam. What did you think about this particular retcon? Let's just start there. Let's start at the end and work our way backwards. So I've been waiting for you to see this particular scene for a long, long time. Back before uh, we planned to do this, when you refused, every time we saw the trailer for Hobbs and Shaw in the theaters, when we went to theaters, we've seen that trailer many, many times, probably over a dozen times. And every time, you're sitting there having no idea that Hobbs, part of Dom Toretto's family, is forced to work with the man who murdered Han. You had no idea, and now you do, and it means something completely different. I call this, and I've never said it out loud, but I get to now, I have called this the greatest retcon of all time. It's not really technically a retcon because it's, it's more of an Obi-Wan Kenobi, the truth from a certain perspective. We are seeing more of things. Now, Tokyo Drift, the timeline is retconned, but that happened back in Fast 4, so we already know that they're playing fast and loose with the timeline of Tokyo Drift. What we see here is we see more of what happens, and indeed, we'll see more of what happens perhaps 
in in the next film as we get a little bit more context about Jason Statham's character. But the thing that's really interesting here is this brings up the whole justice for Han situation. You know, now that we know his death wasn't an accident, it happened for some reason. We don't know what the reason is at the end of this movie. I assume we will learn what happens and why in in future films. But this sets up a really great pop culture storyline. And like I said, really works as one of the best ways to retroactively change a story. There are lots of bad ways to do it. This is a good one. It is right up there with Ghost Kenobi telling Luke a thing or two on Dagobah. It's right up there. So as you just mentioned, we saw the preview for Hobbs and Shaw in the movie theater like 51,000 times. So I, I already knew that The Rock and Jason Statham were part of this franchise. I knew what their names were. And so I was actually really shocked watching this film to learn that the villain, Owen Shaw, was actually Luke Evans. Like I was, I had no idea that that was a way that they were going to go. I just assumed when they were like, oh, you're going against Owen Shaw. I was like, oh, that's the Shaw that Jason Statham plays, right? So I thought we were going to get him in this film, but I thought he was going to be Luke Evans's character. And so I was, I was actually very surprised by that. And then as soon as he was like, and then my brother said, I was like, oh, okay. All right. I get it. I know what's happening here. But yeah, I, there was a lot I was not expecting in this film because of that, I guess. And so it, it's kind of nice to know that even when you do get spoiled on some things, there are ways that this franchise can surprise you. So you talk a little bit about the Shaw character and the fact that he was not who you thought he was in this film. The Hobbs character, however, is exactly who you think he is. Dwayne The Rock Johnson shows up. His last right-hand woman is now with Dom, so he needs a new right-hand person. And that is former MMA fighter Gina Carano, who you might recognize as the former rebel turned Mando best friend turned Marshall from The Mandalorian. So, Gina Carano's here. Fun times. What do you think, Tessa, about the development of Hobbs' character in this movie? I mean, I think it's a really natural progression from where we saw him at the end of the last movie. Like, nothing about this surprised me. I knew that they were going to work together eventually because you could just see it at the end of five when he was just like, oh, you scamps, I'm going to give you 24 hours. I'm like, you love them. You're, You're going to work with them eventually. And so it's absolutely not surprising to me at all that he would come to Dom at the beginning of this and say okay, I, I need your help. Like, you are you are the person who has to help me take down this man, Owen Shaw, who participates in vehicular warfare. Nothing about this surprised me. It was really cool actually seeing him not as the villain, I guess. Not, not that I saw him as particularly villainous in Five, but seeing him actually work together, seeing them enable each other in a lot of ways, I think works really well in this film. It just amps everything up. So, of course, the the danger here is that we could start doing the same movie over and over again, right? And they make some conscious choices to not do that. So there are some things about the structure, the DNA of this movie, that changes a little bit. And Tessa, I know that one of the ones that you brought up when we were watching it had to do with Brian. 
Brian is really decentered in this film. He does have a bit of a storyline. We do see him go to prison to confront Braga, who is also in this film. It turns out Braga was working for Owen Shaw in from number four. But so we, we get to see him go to prison to figure out what happened to Letty, and he does take a lot of responsibility for what happened to Letty. But beyond that, he doesn't really have much of a plot. Brian has sort of had his full character arc at this point, and you know, knowing that Paul Walker isn't with us for very much longer. I kind of wonder what they were going to do with him in this particular franchise because he definitely takes a backseat here, <laughs> pun intended, to Dom and Dom's relationship with Letty. Like this is much more a movie about Dom than it is about Brian. His relationship with Dom also takes a backseat to Dom's relationship with Hobbs, right? To go back to what you said about you know, the the villain working for a bigger villain, which is definitely a 007 thing. You know, as much as the structure changes in this movie, it leans farther into the Bond territory. So one of the things that, that Bond movies are known for are the over-the-top stunts and the shenanigans that he gets up to in that way. Of course, you heard us a few episodes ago talking about uh, the Roger Moore, entering the Roger Moore era of Bond, which is where the the, frankly, the stupidest stunts of the, the Bond franchise happened. But here, we got some pretty cool stuff. We have plenty of car pranks, but we also have rock pranks and diesel pranks. We got lots of pranks in this movie. Tessa, what were some of your favorite pranks? So, like you said, we get to see most of the pranks so far have been car-based. There have been a few, like, you know, body-based pranks, as it were. This we get to see a lot more of both Vin Diesel and The Rock doing things outside of cars. So one of them is Hobbs throwing himself off of a bridge onto a car during a car chase. That was pretty cool. Like sort of using himself as like a wrecking ball in some ways. The Vin Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez stunt where she's thrown off of the tank and Vin Diesel goes off of the the bridge and throws himself out out of the window and catches her is... One of the coolest things that have happened in this franchise. Like, it is so cool. And with, later when she's like, how did you know there was going to be a car to break our fall? And he's like, I didn't. And you just know that, like, there's so much, it, like, it's a stunt, but it's a love stunt. Like, he loves her so much. Like, he was going to fall to his death for her if there wasn't a car to catch them. And I, I don't know, like, this franchise, like you said, combines, like, those sort of emotional beats with bad so well like they're just so well blended especially in the character of dom and there's some really great fight scenes with gina carano like you said she i think does a really good job in this just because she's she's so bad but she also is just so physically intimidating at the same time like this is this is some good stuff and of course we get the car pranks like you said they go up against a tank they go up against a plane. That's the the whole climactic sequence at the end. The Owen Shaw and his gang, who are also supposed to be these great car drivers, and so we finally see them going up against someone with a similar skill set as them. They have these like they look like the Batmobile to me. What what did you call them? The Badmobile. Yeah. So they're these like little tumbler cars that like are all armor plated and can just like crush other cars. And like, I, I don't know. Like, I just thought this was like five, but kicked up a notch in terms of stunt work. I, I don't know. I just liked this film a lot. I'm sorry. I could just keep talking about just all these different stunts. Anyway, those are some of my favorite. Those are probably my two favorite. One rock prank, two diesel prank. But what did you think about the car pranks? 
thinking about this movie, which we just watched, I really don't remember the car pranks. I remember the tank. I remember the plane. I remember we were joking about it, and they mentioned the name of these kinds of cars in the movies, but that's not important. I want to call them because Tessa was like, what is this, the Batmobile? And I was like, no, they're bad guys. It's the Badmobile. So we've been calling the Badmobiles. You know which one I'm talking about if you've seen the movie. You know, the thing about this, and depending, yeah, we get one street racing scene in this movie. It's an obligatory thing. We see it happen. Apparently, Justin Lin was kind of over these. This movie really is about all the other kinds of vehicles that we can do pranks on, in, on top of, underneath, to the left of, to the right of, underneath, inside, outside. It's a whole lesson in prepositions. Another thing that I wanted to bring up, because you brought it up, Tessa, going back to the structure, this movie is really fun to watch, and it really changes a lot of things that happen in this series. You mentioned another genre of pop culture that this movie decides to like move all the way into. The, this movie, I mean, it. this includes the last movie, or frankly, all the movies we've seen so far, but it especially is apparent in this movie that this is a telenovela. We get someone with amnesia who comes back from the dead. Like, that is a straight-out-of-a-telenovela soap opera move, and I really appreciated, and I, I don't know if she gets her memory back, she doesn't in this movie, but... I really appreciated the idea that this is someone, that Letty as a character is, she's sort of a blank slate, but she's not because she still has those fundamental personality traits that make her who she is. She gets very mad at Owen Shaw when he suggests that any member of a team is replaceable, that you just switch out parts when you need to because she still values family. And I think that's what appeals to her most. I mean, it appeals to everyone when they meet Dom, right? That's why he is able to switch so many people from law enforcement to his side. He cultivates this idea that everyone in the group is important, that everyone is irreplaceable, and she's really drawn to that. And I, I appreciated the fact that they were willing to make some changes to her character, but still keep her that core personality. What did you think about the whole Letty reintroduction? So the great thing about Letty, when she, when she turns back, and, and of course by the end of this movie, we find out that, no, she doesn't remember anything and it doesn't matter, which, which actually reminded me of the end of the series Chuck, uh, which was always desperately unfulfilling for me because I want to know how that's going to work. But the idea is, is like whether she remembers or not, this could still be a thing. And that's the same energy that we get out of this. What's important is that the core of her character is still there, that she's always going to side with loyalty and family, a theme that this movie just goes hard into. But of course, before we start talking about that, Letty turns from the bad guys back to the family, but Gina Carano's character, Hicks, also turns because, curse your sudden but inevitable betrayal, she is a bad guy and she goes over to Shaw. Oh God. So we have a girl fight. And by the way, this is of course the film of good girl fights, right? The girl fights are better than... The other fights in this movie, and I am using girl fight on purpose because these two girl fights create the Michelle Rodriguez girl fight trilogy that began with her first ever role in a movie called Girl Fight. The fact that it took six movies to get there tells you 
about some of the mistakes at the beginning of this series about not making Michelle Rodriguez a more core character. Ben Diesel, other folks have expressed regret, and that's good. It's good to know when you're wrong, but they really go all in on Michelle Rodriguez getting to do the fights and the stunts. The fight between her and Gina Carano's character on the plane is really great. I don't know. Is it better than the one from earlier in the movie, Tessa? The one in the tunnel is just like iconic, I think. I mean, the the scene where Michelle Rodriguez gets up on her feet and swings the handcuffs around to use as a as as some knuckles is just I I don't know. I really appreciated that fight. I liked how it wasn't clear which one of them was going to end up on top. The tumble down the stairs at the end, I was like, "Oh my gosh, they both have concussions now." But I I thought that was really good and I really appreciate the way that they have started to recenter female characters in this as people who are part of the action who are have a lot of agency because we get Letty, we get Gina Carano, like you said, we get Gal Gadot again, as you said, we uh, even Owen Shaw has a as, has a female sidekick who drives the Badmobile and winks at Brian after wrecking one of his cars. So we get a little bit more of that, and I really appreciate that in this particular film. At one point in the movie, Roman realizes that uh, Owen Shaw's crew is like the Bizarro version of all of them. <laughs> And and talks about, you know, makes the comparisons and then gets over to the 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 wheel woman that you just mentioned and was like, but but Brian and, you know, makes fun of him for that reason, because that's clearly the Brian analog in that squad. So, yeah, they go all in on making sure that women aren't just side characters in this movie and it benefits. But with every celebration of good things there is always a storm cloud over the top and we have to say goodbye because we can't have too many women characters with agency we have to say goodbye to wonder woman she goes out in a blaze of glory i'll point out there's no body so but she goes out in a blaze of glory how'd that make you feel I mean, I think if we've learned anything from this particular film, it's that if there's no body, they probably aren't dead and have amnesia. So there is a chance we could see Gal Gadot again. I, I am I'm holding firm to that. It was actually sad. I mean, Giselle as a character is not necessarily the most developed or interesting character in this franchise. But I really loved her relationship with Han. I loved the development of it in Fast Five. I really like how they had this long, this like running thread through this film about, you know, settling down and what does that look like for two people who really live their lives by adrenaline rushes and, you know, have this much money. You know, she mentions maybe going to Tokyo and settling down with him. He saves her life a couple of times. So you, you just know that they're building for him, her to save his life. And so, you know, just this scene where she lets go because she has to shoot the guy who's creeping up behind him and, you know, gets whisked away into the darkness. It, it's sad. It, it, it actually struck a knell with me in a way that I didn't think that any of these minor characters really could strength, strike that knell. There's some serious dramatic irony present here because, you know, Han is just about to die, too. It still has that emotional impact. This, this movie still tricks you into thinking. These two could have had a happy ending, even though you know they won't. So, but also I'll point out there's no body for Han either. There was a casket. Who knows what we buried in there? We just need a body, man. If there's no body, it didn't happen. I know the rules of action movies and telenovelas. 
Okay, the other thing, real quick before we get to our fast facts, they hit family so hard in this movie. I do want to point out the juxtaposition because it really stood out to me between Owen Shaw. As I said earlier, he has this attitude of not family. It's like the anti-family. Like all of his crew are replaceable. He blows up a member of his crew at the beginning of the movie. And then when one of them dies, he's just like, oh, he made a mistake and he paid for it. Whatever. We'll get someone else. And not only do I think that really turns Letty off, but it's really this big juxtaposition between Dom, who is a criminal, but where he's, they're supposed to be the good guys because they love each other and because they, they have each other's backs versus this guy who's just in it for, you know, money or power or whatever. And so to us, we're supposed to take that and say like, okay, like there is a right way to live and a wrong way to live. And Dom clearly has the right way to live because he treats his people like family. All right. So before we get a little more into family and how hard this movie goes into family, let's go ahead and talk some fast facts. Hobbs is either the laziest or the smartest version of Nick Fury because he didn't have to go around assembling a team. Dom assembled the team and he just assembled Dom's team. Good job, Hobbs. However, much as I compared him to Nick Fury, characters in the movie decided to refer to him as A, the Hulk, B, Captain America, and C, Samoan Thor. So that's pretty fun. The biggest fast fact about this movie is that, you know, it's very blandly tight, fast and furious six. Whatever. You could do better. And in fact, they had planned to. This was actually supposed to be two movies. The first half, The Fast, that ends with the big tank scene, followed by The Furious, a completely separate movie that ends with the plane. Pretty neat, huh? But I think it worked out okay the way that it did. As Tessa said earlier, you know, these movies are supposed to represent different things. In this, this, this whole setup here, you know, putting the Fast and the Furious into two different movies, they're trying to do exactly that. So that's pretty interesting. Now, the Fast culminates with a tank. That's a real tank. They said, hey, let's do a CGI tank. And Justin Lin said, but what if we could use an actual tank? Justin Lin, champion of practical effects. That's right. And then we have the Furious that ends with the plane sequence. Tessa, if you said it once, you said it half a dozen times. What did you keep saying during that sequence? How long is this runway? That sequence takes like 20 minutes. There is no runway in the world that is that long. And you're not the only one who wondered that. So the BBC did a, did a whole study about this when the, when the movie came out. You can find it on the internet. It's great. Let's start off. Let's go in reverse here. The longest runway in the world at that time was about three and a half miles long in China. Now, of course, we're not in China in this film, so, but just keep that in mind. This sequence is 13 minutes. Does it take place real time over 13 minutes? Presumably no. We go back and forth between people seeing things that might be happening at the same time. Okay, the article that I'm talking about here kind of takes that into account. But here's a couple of things that we know. The Rock reports that they were driving at speeds around 115 miles per hour. Experts who know things about that size cargo plane says you really need to be going at least 120 miles per hour for a plane of that size to be able to take off. So if you put all of these facts together, the conclusion that the BBC with their experts reached 
is that although the longest runway in the world at that time is 3.5 miles long, to do what happens in this film, that runway would have to be almost 18 and a half miles long. So that's how long it would have to be, Tessa. I, I still don't buy it. Like, it, literally, there were several times where I was like, this is a really cool scene. But you have to wonder, how long does it take a plane to take off? Did that take you out of the movie? Like, you clearly noticed that something was wrong here. This has no basis in reality. As I've said before, action movies that do things that are just not real, but you don't care. Because either you care about the characters, or you're just being wowed by what's happening, or in this case, both. You tend to give people a lot of slack in terms of this. How do you feel? I've talked about before how they make you not care. This is not the real world. This is clearly a fantasy world in which cars can stand up to tanks and people can jump over chasms and catch other people. And, you know, all of these things that like just can't physically happen in real life. But this world convinces you, these movies convince you that this world could be real, that what you're seeing could potentially exist in some universe because, as Megan pointed out last night, there's this blend between earnestness and just, you know, ridiculousness in these films, and it works really well. This did sort of take me out of the moment a couple of times just because it just kept going. Like, I just kept expecting it to be over at some point because either the plane would take off or they would destroy the plane, which is, of course, what happened. But for the most part, no. Like, there was only really a couple moments where I was like, how is this still happening? Let's see what everybody around the world thought, see if they had a beef with this movie and just decided not to go see it. The budget was $160 million, so we're moving up and up and up. Opening weekend, $97.3 million domestic, so apparently people were not bothered by this runway shenanigans. The total box office for this movie is $700 and $88 million. It's just stupid how much money this movie made. Of course, it won the weekend. Coming in second, Hangover Part 3. Coming in third, a preview of things to come in Justin Lin's career, Star Trek Into Darkness. Fourth, Epic. And five, while there is no X-Men movie this year, there is an Iron Man 3. Pretty lively weekend there at the box office. Much as we've talked about how maybe the Corona moments, the references to Corona beer in this, in this series is overblown, there are a couple in this movie. There is one where Dom shares a Corona with Hobbs fairly early, and then there is the obligatory family picnic at the end of the film where are, there are Coronas present. So now we're up to a total of six Corona moments in the franchise. The family number... However, there are a whopping 11 mentions of family, and we're talking about times when family is mentioned. Not references to family, not brotherhood, not that. I'm saying the word family comes out of their mouth 11 times in this movie. Mia tells Brian to go with them, because that's what family does. Hobbs, working on the whole... um, the whole join up and do things. He invokes the word family twice in a conversation and Brian hits it himself one time. We're also told that you don't turn your back on family. Dom and Shaw in a conversation mention it three times. When Elena leaves the squad, she says it two times. I don't even think we mentioned that Elena's back in this movie, but she is. And then finally, 
the very end of the movie, Roman gets tricked into saying grace because he's always so hungry. He mentions family in the prayer, which brings us to a grand total of 19 mentions of family in the franchise so far. I'm sure there'll be more. I'm sure there's going to be a boatload in the next movie for reasons. All right, guys, it's time to scatter. Join us tomorrow for the next installment of the Nine Days of Fast and Furious, Furious 7. Will Shaw wreck Dom Toretto's family? Over the next three days, we have more guests and lots more holiday spirit lined up. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. Because Jason Statham and The Rock are taking over for Santa this Christmas Eve. Watch along with us. Tweet at us. Email us. Let us know all your Fast and Furious thoughts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog and email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach 9. You can find Tessa on Twitter and Letterboxd at Swela Tessa, S-W-E-H-L-A. Also, check out our regular weekly episodes of Monkey Off My Backlog as well as our newest series, Monkey Nights. Our special holiday theme song is Scott Holmes' version of Jingle Bells and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Find the podcast on Spotify, Amazon Podcast, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. The only thing that matters is the people in this room.